So we are live on YouTube with, uh, we should be, <laughs> for uh, Right Wing Dharma Squads, episode two. We weren't able to do a um, live stream last time, but this time I have our co-host and friend Aura on. Aura, you want to say hi? Hey, how's it going? And I don't know if, if are you showing up? In the, do you have the YouTube uh, thing open? Let me, okay, yeah, you are showing up. Okay, great. So, all right, I think this is actually working working pretty well. So, um, yeah, um, we had some we had some discussions about what we wanted to talk about this time, and um, you would, I know you have an interest in ritual and magic, and uh, I do as well. And there was also a an interesting question from uh, an interesting guy goes by Zenite uh, at Ordinary with a zero on Twitter. And um, so I think, because uh, he, he asked, you know, what, um, how the Vajrayana understand, there was a question sort of for an introduction to Vajrayana, and I thought this would be a good opportunity um, to talk about that because so much of what, how the Vajrayana understands itself, so to speak, and and what it is in a sense has to do with what you could call magical ritual methods or, or ritual technologies. Uh, or are, are you how how much familiarity with this topic do you have in terms of like specifically Vajrayana stuff? Um, pretty 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 well familiar. Um, I really actually got quite uh, what's the word? Um, I was quite taken with some of the descriptions from the Tibetan masters, but I haven't studied like the doctrine around it very much. If if that sure, makes sense. Yeah. An and Kagyu, I see you're now in the room, um, and you you've mentioned that you have some reservations or skepticism. Is that right? Actually, I can't hear you. I don't know if we're having this same problem again. Uh, Aura, can you hear Kagyu if he's talking? I can, yes. Oh, son of a bitch. Uh, I don't know what to do about this. Um, yeah, this is... Kagyu, can you maybe disable any privacy extensions and, and exit and rejoin the room? Um, and I will... Uh, I'm going to have to keep going because I am hosting the event. Um so yeah i don't know it's interesting yeah he said he's gonna rejoin okay sounds good and hopefully that'll work um okay so so uh yeah i'll, I'll just i'll just start going so the um i was actually saying this a little bit i had a kind of a debate uh you could say with um a pagan guy um, it was less of a debate for most of the start. We just started most of the time we were talking about um, where we were coming from and, and the different approaches to the problem of suffering. I still can't hear Kagi. I can see that his thing is working and, and I can't hear him. So, so uh, yeah, so the, the, what, the reason I'm bringing it up is because um, I, I, I was thinking about it more and I realized, you know, that's, it's actually... Um, it's an in, I, not that this is original to me, of course, but but that it really uh, I think it's a helpful way to think about what the Vajrayana is. Is basically it's Mahayana Buddhism, that is Great Vehicle Buddhism, this um, 
where that instead of um and I know you're in the Thai forest tradition. Maybe we could talk about that at some point too, where, where it's, uh, cause I guess technically that's Theravada. Um, and so from a kind of polemical stance within the Mahayana, the idea is that the Theravada tradition is kind of, um, it's insufficient because it's concerned only with your own enlightenment. Whereas the Mahayana, what defines it is that you're concerned with attaining not just the state of being an Arhat, but the state of being a full, perfect, enlightened buddha and that um you're doing this so that all you, because as a buddha you can benefit limitless sentient beings infinitely which is not right. something you can do as an arhat so it's like a superior goal and we, we can get into that another time the the point with no the that's fine that's a good summary. yeah i'm sure yeah. there's you know from a terabyte perspective it's like well what are you even talking about <laughs> no no it's a good summary um but um the Vajrayana essentially is, it's it's a subset of Mahayana. It's definitely Mahayana. It's not not Mahayana, but the, it, it was, it's it's basically a, you could say consolidation or um, it is how, what you could call Tantric Buddhism became a distinct entity in India and later Tibet over the course of some, you know, somewhere from like, around the year starting around five six hundred uh up through the end of buddhism in india when the muslims came and killed everyone um and there's a lot that goes into that and it's a really kind of a broad topic but uh the the bottom line really is as these ritual technologies became more systematized and that there was a kind of irregularity that because you have in the early early period um i mean you have what's called dharanis which are like basically magic spells i mean essentially and you and you even have consecrations and sort of magic spells of this nature uh going all the way back to like the the earliest stupas in the earliest buddhist tradition they have you know certain mantras that they would recite to do stuff and have a kind of physical effect on the world um, and, and so it, it's not without precedent in the earlier literature, but it really starts getting systematized around the year five or 600. Um, and, and then these, these, all these methods kind of get grouped together and consolidated. And, and then, um, in Tibet, they get really, um, system, like even more elaborately systematized and, and categorized. Um, and they, but they all kind of fall together under the heading of Vajrayana and what, what, what distinguishes it as Vajrayana is that, um, I mean, the one classical way of thinking about it is, whereas in the general Mahayana, um, it's understood that the process of becoming a fully enlightened Buddha takes three incalculable eons, and where an incalculable eon is defined as the length of time that it takes for a, uh, what is it? If there's like a mountain of sand, a mountain of sand, and every so often a bird takes one right. grain right. of sand and moves it the amount of time that it takes for the mountain to disappear or, or for or to uh, erode a giant stone with a feather yeah exactly exactly yeah. like so really really long period of time that's one incalculable eon and so it takes three of those in the general mahayana to fully work out all your karma and attain buddhahood um but then in the vajrayana it said that with you know discipline and dedication etc that you can attain that's you can 
reach the goal in just a single lifetime. And the reason why that's possible is, uh, I mean, among other reasons, is because you have these really, really powerful methods which, are, which amount to a certain kind of magic. And, and basically, I mean, if you look at it kind of historically, anthropologically in, in those terms, um, what, the, what, the, what the Indian Buddhists, tantric Indian Buddhists were doing was essentially repurposing pre-existing magical ritual methods, magical ritual forms, things that have been used by, you know, sorcerers to acquire power and wealth and money and sex and all this stuff. Um, and instead of using it to acquire those kind of worldly things, and maybe also those kind of worldly things, but the point is that you were doing it to attain enlightenment. You were doing it to like, rather than destroy your enemies understood as like external human beings, you're, you're, you're using it to destroy your enemies understood as your own affliction. Your My, own uh, yeah. All right. Well, I had a couple quick, quick yeah, questions yeah, yeah. for you. One was, um, we got interrupted both times. One, what was the uh, content of your discussion with Zenite? And what was the content of your discussion with your pagan friend? <laughs> well, so with Zenite, um, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't, wasn't really, um, he, he basically, I mean, he has an interesting kind of perspective on this because I don't know nearly enough. I basically know nothing about Zen, which is it's just a little unfortunate. We weren't able to get Storm King this morning. We'll have him next time. And we should have like a, maybe a Zen versus Bajriana face off at some point. I think that would be fun. Or like just a free for all with Terravada. I don't know, but yeah, that'd be great. Uh, he basically said, um, what, he said, given the general teaching is in in Japanese, so in Japan there is people don't know this uh, often, but there is actually what you could consider Vajrayana Buddhism of a sort. I mean, it, it they got the earlier material, they didn't get the later material because it it um, was transferred into Japan like around eight hundred, and and there were some important developments on the Indian tantric side after that that made it into tibet um because it's a lot closer and easier to travel and so on and plus like when the muslims started coming and killing everyone all the indian teachers essentially fled to tibet um but in japan they got a lot of this material but they only got the earlier stuff and there's two main uh schools of japanese tantric buddhism which are Shingon and Tendai, and I couldn't really tell you the difference between them. Uh, I forget. <laughs> but um, so I asked Zen, I, uh, you know, how does Zen feel about Shingon and Tendai? And he says, well, I don't, I haven't really read anything, but given that the general teaching in Zen is, or sorry, given that the general teaching, as he understands it for those schools, for t Japanese tantric Buddhism, is that since everyone is essentially a Buddha, just see into your own nature and be emancipated, that they would probably be regarded as provisional and inferior teachings just like the Pure Land sect in Japan, which is Jodo, Jodo Shinshu. Right. Uh, and then he says, the distinction between ritual technology and magic is pretty important. Numerous Zen stories about how, there are numerous Zen stories about how supernatural abilities are the result of bad karma and shouldn't be desired, and that miraculous power and supernatural ability just amount to chopping wood and carrying water. They are overhyped. Um, which I think is an interesting perspective. I don't actually, in, in, at the most basic fundamental level, I don't, I don't disagree with any of that. Uh, sure. Except for maybe the part about how just that since everyone is essentially Buddha, see into your own nature and be emancipated is provisional inferior. I don't get that at all. I don't see that as either of those things, and I have a very hard time understanding how they would be. Kagyu, I can see you in the chat, but I still can't hear you. 
Yeah, we got to keep going. I, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, no, no, no. It's good. Yeah. All right. I apologize to anyone listening to this on the podcast. Um, technical difficulties are real. We're just going to keep going. Uh, yeah. So I don't understand how the since everyone is essentially a Buddha, just see into your own nature and be emancipated. That I, I guess in a certain sense, because it's linguistic as an instruction. Sure. In that sense, it's provisional. Um, I really wish we had a Zen guy to like go into this with, but you know, maybe maybe another time. Um, because yeah, from, from what's, um, what's interesting, and I guess maybe where this kind of has to do with the, um, the general esoteric, I don't know, I I wouldn't say there's a general esoteric tradition, but let's say esotericism in some sense per se is, um, the, I think, um, insofar as something like chaos magic, which to my understanding understands itself as kind of like just how ritual works is you have to be able to suspend disbelief you have to be able to kind of step into a mental space where uh your ordinary expectations no longer really function in that way um that's number one very similar to what's going on like in tantric buddhist ritual methods is you you yeah you have to kind of suspend a certain kind of disbelief the the key point is it's not actually like the problem is your belief right the problem is our ordinary belief that things are solid and concrete and real in a certain way um that's actually wrong that is a false belief and so the reason or one of the reasons why the rituals work is because you're, when you when you suspend that false belief um, or that false disbelief, then you're actually more accurate. Um, but the reason why it's not just kind of general magic and the reason why it's Buddhist and is Dharma and constitutes a Dharmic path towards enlightenment is because, yeah, it's not just that you're sort of saying, well, you know, maybe, you know, things aren't real in the way I'm used to thinking of them or, or inter- kind of mentally engaging with them as being real in a certain way. It's that uh, actually, you know, I'm seeing myself for what I really am, which is a fully enlightened Buddha. I just kind of have, there's all this other, there's this stuff going on that normally I kind of fixate on or I don't, I forget that I'm actually a Buddha, but I'm now I'm going to remember. Now I'm going to remember this. And I'm going to proceed from that recognition, from that realization and do Buddha activity. And, and that's how it's really theorized is, you know, when you're doing these things to like, whatever, you know, make it rain, whether literally or, you know, with money or whatever, you know, what you're doing is, I mean, the, the whole point is uh, to, like, if let's say you want money, right? Well, why do you want money? Is it just to have more stuff? That's not a really good motivation. Um, what, when it, become, it becomes Buddha activity, when, you know, household, you know, you want to spread the Dharma, people need resources to spread the Dharma, people need resources to practice. If someone wants to go on a retreat, you know, they need food, if you don't have money, if you don't have food, you can't practice. And so from that kind of a perspective, you say, well, you know, I can actually influence causal circumstances so that people who are want to practice can be able to practice. And so that, you know, if there's a Buddhist state, if there's a Buddhist king, if a Dharma, Dharma king, right, that he needs to be able to defend his kingdom 
and to maintain his kingdom. And so there's things that you can do. You, the, 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 fundamentally, what you're doing is you're arranging causal circumstances. It, it's, it, you know, it's a kind of, thinking of it as magic can be helpful in some ways, but, but there's often a kind of, people misunderstand it. it it's just, it's all, there's nothing that's not causality. And so what you're doing is you're manipulating causality. That's really all it comes down to. Well, anyway. that was a mouthful, my friend. And um, <laughs> yes, yeah, sir. I don't know how uh, how much sense that even made. No, it made a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense. Um, I think an important thing to do for me personally at the start of any kind of conversation like this is to emphasize for our listeners and just for my own ego how little I actually know about um, the manifestation of these kinds of powers, because I think that. Um, you know, I might have some friends listening to this who have studied a lot of this later and they're going to be like, oh, come on, Aura doesn't really know what he's talking about. So I <laughs> I just want to be very upfront that I'm very much a neophyte about all this stuff. And um, it's not to be overly um, modest about stuff or put on false modesty, because we could probably say that at the beginning of every talk that we do about Buddhism uh, uh, in general. Yeah, we're all we're so, all beginners here, right? That's not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, probably if I was like a totally enlightened master, I would. Well, I don't know. I won't say that. I was going to say I wouldn't even be on this call, but that's not necessarily true. But um, <laughs> I think that, you know, if you take a step back and get away from the various schools um, and the various, you know, historical ways that these came, uh, these beliefs came about, is you have to ask yourself at the beginning of the discussion, do you believe that such phenomena are real? inside or outside of buddhism like do you think that it's a description of the material world at least as we see it that these sort of immaterial things happen and without getting into the weeds of the the overall buddhist idea that all of it including supernatural powers is um you know is illusory but if we're just describing the world and if in our descriptions of the world from various masters and from legends of the past and everything and and of the present day when, when very uh, outlandish and basically magical-sounding things happen, do we believe that such things actually happen? And then you can start from there to, to try to fit it into a dharmic perspective. Sure. And I, I guess I would say that uh, with the obvious caveat that, of course, some of it's going to be baloney because there's always baloney, right. whether, we're yeah. whether, whether we're describing the movement of armies across the landscape or we're describing you know, somebody's magical levitation powers. Of course, not all of it is going to be real. There is going to be embellishment in the records and everything. However, with that caveat, I, my simple answer to that question is I do believe it's real. Um, and that uh, I, you know, I've personally experienced some things and seen some things that, that sort of taken the doubt out of my mind on that, on that issue. So then if you do believe that something like the rainbow body or, um, telepathy or ESP or, or things like that d do actually manifest and they are real and not imagined, then then how do we fit that into the dharmic perspective? Because as you mentioned before, DK, uh, or you were saying, well, I suppose there's no one esoteric tradition, but there is something we could call esotericism in general. If that is a feature of the world, then uh, what does it mean um, for us as practitioners and, and how does Buddhism understand these things? And um, it's interesting what you say about the Shingon uh, and the other school in Japan saying that these uh, are not only distractions on the path, which I think all schools will probably teach that, but that they are, in fact, the result of bad karma. Yeah, but that that's I an, found really... That's an interesting yeah, perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
So I just wanted to say that piece sort of at the beginning that like that's the big picture thing and sure. um, you know I, it's this... a, it's a ch it's a challenge I think for I mean well we, what's interesting is um uh I think in, for westerners it's it's a kind of double-edged thing because on the one hand we're so, the, you know the world we inhabit is what uh Charles Taylor would call a disenchanted world where you know, prior to the so-called enlightenment, I really need to go endarkenment. Endarkenment is kind of lazy and stupid, but you, you know what I mean. This uh, the 17th century, 18th century sure. rationalism sure. that has taken over everything. Um, you know, prior to that, people lived in a world of spirits. People or understood that they lived, I should say, in a world of spirits. They understood that they lived in a world where material reality was just sort of, you know, at most the surface of what was actually happening and you know now people inhabit a world that they interpret as being in general typically you know exclusively material and so it can be really hard it can be a real stumbling block for people you know when they read these as you say outlandish fantastic stories in scriptures and so on um it can be like well they're just making stuff up or who knows why or the primitive people and blah blah, blah. and and yeah things get embellished things get you know um added or whatever but uh on the other hand you also have this phenomenon like there was a guy who um who dm'd me i don't want to name names but basically he was like you know can you can, i would i just want to believe in some i want to see i want to know that there's something more than this material reality and i i don't understand you know i i feel trapped and i think people are often attracted to uh tibetan buddhism and other forms of vajrayana because it seems to offer, yeah, there's this sense of like, well, you know, if you want magic, you know, we, we got that. And, and, and in fact, historically, that's kind of how, um, that is one of, that is one of the ways that the Tibetans um, maintained a degree of political independence from the Mongol Golden Horde was by positioning themselves as, you know, we are the ritual esoteric masters. If you, you know, Kublai Khan or whoever want to be able to, you know, use these powers you know come come see us and um that was you know one of the ways that they they did things and it worked so um all of which is just to say like it, it it's it's a kind of funny thing where i think on there's often a kind of surface level thing that westerners have where they they sort of instinctively recoil from um this what they regard as maybe superstition or something like that but then it's in an interesting kind of like the you know freud is kind of fake and gay but i think there is something to like the, this phenomenon of the phobia in the sense of like there's a kind of secret attraction like usually that's fake and gay and stupid particularly about homosexuals but in this case i think there, there you can maybe even look at it that way as like the re there's a kind of fascination with this superstition underlying sometimes at least this um this uh this kind of like oh what are you even talking about you know people can't levitate i don't know if that makes sense maybe i'm wrong i don't know no it does make sense i think so um that's part of the uh reason that freud is so popular is because some of what he says yeah. actually makes a good deal yeah. of sense uh which gets you sucked into then believing all the bullshit yeah, that yeah, yeah. <laughs> goes along with it yeah. it's the same thing with uh you know like Marxism, for example, the, the exactly. excellent yeah, I would say Marx, the excellent like, critique followed by like the retarded yeah. Uh, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> like, solution. Yeah, I I often say I agree. I like I agree with Marx's analysis. It's his assumptions and his conclusions that I have problems with. Yeah, there you, uh, yeah, exactly. Um, 
w- one one thing that I'm hesitant to even go into, but I'm going to do it anyway, is uh, for some of these phenomena, there are somewhat new agey um, explanations. That, by the way, do you have a do you have a speaker up in the background? Yeah, unfortunately, I um... you can't you can't mute it. It's not a speaker. It's I, I didn't I didn't realize okay. until I had already started that your your sound is coming. Are you like getting feedback? Just a little bit. I can talk through it. Sorry. Yeah. If it's not if it's not too much of a problem, otherwise I'd have to. I realize I'd have to restart the stream. We can also try it like this. This might help somewhat. Yeah. Don't worry about it. It's it's really I'm I'm being nitpicky. This is our first our first like actual live live stream on YouTube. Is, is yes a- for the for anybody listening to this. Welcome to the jungle. Um, <laughs> uh. Yeah, so there are somewhat mundane explanations of what seem like supernatural powers. And my hesitation is because it starts sounding like we're trying to um, almost like make apologies um, for what is essentially magical powers by by, um, taking refuge in what is kind of like a pseudoscience. But... Like I said, despite my hesitations, I'm going to go into this anyway. Yeah, do it. Um, for example, with with reading minds, um, which is something uh-huh. that uh, the Buddha was claimed to be yes, able to yes. to do, and many many masters um, have been purported to have this this um, ability. And of course, one of the complicating factors is that um, somebody who's really actually a true master is not going to show this off um, right. and is not going to make personal claims about it. But there are many many many. Uh, in, in basically every tradition I've ever uh, heard about, including Zen, by the way, uh, accounts of masters basically knowing exactly what, what people are thinking uh, without being told. Um, it's something that the um, that the Buddha was, you know, was a, one of his many powers uh, was was claimed to be this. And there are sort of you can sort of edge your way um, towards understanding how such a thing might be possible, even in using relatively mundane explanations so the average person uh, already has a sense of like you know people have a certain vibe um you know you you get certain emotions around certain people and this this gets hand waved away in our you know post enlightenment uh, post enlightenment um world as well you already have psychological uh, reactions to those people because of past reactions so it's all just your subconscious inventing these feelings based on triggers essentially or they say, well, it's micro communication. It's um, it's somebody's body language, this, that, and the other, and that's why you get these vibes. And those explanations may be true, um, but there's also the phenomenon of being uh, watched from behind and sensing that that's that's happening to you, <laughs> yeah. um, which is something we've all experienced. But again, people when they experience it, they go, well, that was just a I don't know. It's confirmation bias. You know, I didn't notice all the millions of other times I was being being looked at, and I didn't turn around. But there's been plenty of experiments that show that there is actually a uh, a small but statistically significant um, a measurable impact of if you stare at the back of somebody's head and they can tell when you're staring really? at them. Really, I would have. I mean, I, I don't necessarily doubt it. I'd be curious to see what those studies. Yeah, are. it's the 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 guy who did the most work on that is a guy named Rupert Sheldrake, uh, who's a very interesting cool. person, I'll a British. It yeah, it's cool. With many of these things, the biggest problem is replication. But yeah, uh, you well, know, of course, that's true for nutritional science too. So and it doesn't stop. So people I had from... a, I mean, on on this, 
sorry, we, uh, why don't you finish the thought first and then I'll. No, I'll... no, I have a long, I have a long thought. I'm just, I'm rambling. So go ahead. Just by way of kind of maybe, I don't want to, I don't want you, I don't want to, I want you to finish the thought, but as, as a brief aside, um, because yeah, the replication thing is obviously the critical part. And so I had a, I had a friend once um, who is kind of interested in this stuff. He's actually, he's one of these guys who's on, like, on more on the second part of like, you know, he, like he loves sci-fi and fantasy and he just wants something other than this. He wants some kind of indication that there's more to life than materiality. And uh, I, you know, I had to kind of at one point because um, he was a house guest, I had to sort of excuse myself and say, you know, I need to go do my like, you know, ritual practice now. And he's like, and I, and he noticed because I, you know, he's a perceptive guy. I was like, you know, I kind of closed the doors, and you know, it's not that I was doing anything particularly esoteric. Um, but it looked, but it seemed kind of, kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> and and he's like, you know, I was like, and he came to me later. He's like, well, I was, I was really tempted to, um, like, I wanted to peek through the keyhole and see if you were levitating. <laughs> and I said, look, I mean, I, I appreciate you? the compliment, but it doesn't work that way. The, the way it works is like when you and he, well, maybe, maybe let me, I should say he's like, and then that, and then he said, and then I would get a camera. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. The way it works is if you, if maybe you can see me through the keyhole, if I'm levitating, maybe not. But the second you try to get a camera out, either, either the camera stops working or I fall. Right, like the camera suddenly mysteriously like isn't able like you you pull it up on your phone but it crashes and then your phone has a weird bug and just glitches out or you take a picture but there's nothing you know nothing shows up on the image or and in the process you know I hear some kind of the longer it goes on the more like you know I get distracted and I stop levitating I, I crash to the ground right like right. There, there's no People, you know, I, I, I don't know how to explain it better than that. People have this idea that, you know, if something is um, real, I guess, for lack of a better word, that it can be <laughs> documented in this kind of an objective way. And, and there is a sense in which even a photograph or even this kind of measurement is still subject to the subject, haha, to the lack of subject-object duality. But... Uh, the, from my perspective, the, all of this really comes back down to the measurement problem in quantum mechanics, where any, essentially people, people get tripped up on this idea that, um, well, you know, people, you know, you're saying that everything is mind. It's like, no, it, the point is that any kind of causal interaction is a, is an observation. There's no causal interaction that isn't subject to some kind like the, 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 there's no ultimate distinction between cognitive and causal processes so any kind of causal any kind of causal interaction is in some way a kind of an observation you're and, inside the universe at any time anytime you're observing the universe you're a part of that system. exactly so so this idea that you're gonna like and, and that's what i was saying is like okay well you know maybe maybe you do manage to take the photograph of the guy levitating but first of all especially in these days like who's gonna believe it and you know, oh, that was photoshopped, and and or whatever you get a video or who knows, or maybe something that can't be. But you know, who's to say like what happens to? I mean, the the point is that there's no amount of causal causality that's going to ever like because what's going on is when when there's like this kind of a thing of like someone levitating, what's going or or whatever reading mind reading minds is a little different actually because that has a lot to do 
with um <laughs> yeah uh, i'm gonna i'll come back to that one then, yeah that's, but that, that's a little bit that's a little bit different but um when with this kind of like more overtly um physical yeah kind of stuff it 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 what's what's going on is it's a demonstration of the reality that that causality is it just doesn't you know there's a reg causality is regular but it's not deterministic and it's not um it it's beyond really and and and, and be, because at the end of the day there's no distinction between the cognitive subject and the cognized object uh and every kind of all phenomena are cognized objects so all phenomena are the are 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 inescapably bound up with a cognitive subject and and this duality isn't real so you know when when that's and that's why you can levitate i mean i don't I'm, I'm, there are kind of intermediate steps there but but i'm trying i'm just making a point which is um you, you know the, you're never going to be able to like industrialize this process it just, just doesn't right. work that way yeah yeah no definitely i totally agree and um you're right though that the like um, things like mind reading are somewhat different and i like talking about that stuff because i and when i talk about this stuff i just assume that my interlocutor or my audience is highly skeptical because that's the default position of modern people so uh, i'm sort of accustomed to first of all i don't talk about this yeah, that much but I, I there are i do have some friends who don't necessarily believe this stuff but they do think that i'm a relatively sane person and they value my <laughs> they value my opinion on other topics you know like right. say on politics or literature sports or whatever yeah. um and so they're willing to listen to me on these topics and sometimes will ask me okay explain this to me and i'm starting with the um the the phenomenon of quote-unquote mind reading because the bar to me seems a lot lower for people to understand how such a thing could be real so to take it back to my little my little step-by-step -step narrative there where i was talking about rupert sheldrake and the, the feeling of being looked at Another point, another data point, which is more irrefutable, which is that, you know, you can put, um, uh, what's it called, an EEG on somebody's head, right? Mm -hmm. And you can measure their brainwaves. Um, in fact, people can even buy these things now, like an app for their phone, you know, a little thing you stick on your head. And in a medical yeah, environment... Sure. I, I believe it, yeah. Yeah, in a medical environment with more sophisticated equipment, they can take very interesting and detailed readings of various different brain waves and then they know that some of these brain waves um and when, when i say brain waves i just mean like the actual frequency yeah, of the, the ele electricity inside stuff, your brain yeah. um and they can correlate these brain waves with various mental states uh, the easiest one is like sleep versus rem sleep versus being awake and somebody who's trained with these devices can could be a thousand miles away and look at a readout of somebody's brain waves and say, okay, well, this person is asleep or this sure. person is yeah. agitated yes. or this person is meditating. Um, so now you can actually, they have very sophisticated equipment that can actually take similar style of readings without touching the skull um, using magnetic resonance. Yeah. So you can put a set of magnets around somebody's head and never touch their head and then know a thousand miles away whether that person is asleep <laughs> or awake. Okay, right. so you're these people. You're literally sending your brain state out into the literally out into the physical world, not you know outside of your body. Your brain state is readable by scientific equipment outside of your body. Now, 
as cool as all this stuff is, it's still very clumsy and not very sophisticated because we can only know very general states, right? We can't read the thoughts of the person or read their dream. Yeah. Part of the part of the question here is what is a thought? But yes, continue. Well, yes. Um, so now, when you think, go back to my example of getting a certain vibe off people when they come into the room. Now we have our our pseudo-Freudian explanation of, um, well, it's because of your past interactions with them or it's their micro um, body language, their micro expressions and everything. Now we, now we can also establish they're literally giving off waves, literal vibrations. Um, and the idea that um, human beings wouldn't already be very attuned to these things through however many millions of years of evolution is kind of crazy to me. So... I think that when people do get vibes off of people, it's literal vibes, <laughs> and they're literally um, intuiting the the brain state of the other person. My, I could be wrong, but on the on the waves part of it, my understanding is that we, I mean, not as much as sharks or or whatever, but human beings do respond. They have we have some kind of sensitivity to electromagnetic radiation outside the visible spectrum like in other words visible light is not and i guess heat are not the only forms and you're saying you're Sorry. saying our species is, is particularly um yeah i mean that's, i mean we're, we're of course we're you know those are the ones that we're that are the most relevant to our evolutionary environment and so those are the ones that we're most sensitive to overall but i i do believe that we're sensitive to i mean that's how i guess i mean they just uh, recently as uh they announced you know this um <clears throat> I know they've been working on depression treatment with magnets for a while, and now something was was certified by the FDA. Some people were making fun of it on Twitter. I, I mean, I don't I don't have strong feelings, but I do think it's worth noting that the FDA, to their kind of very exacting standards, because they they do not mess around when it comes to efficacy, um, and they have determined that it's efficacious enough. Magnets are efficacious enough at influencing your mental state that they certified it for treatment. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I, I just want to caution yeah. again, what I said at the very beginning, which is that like, I, I actually don't want to um, take the approach of like using the, you know, using this sort of advances in science or yeah, no, slightly it's not new age. Like, yeah, the Buddhism, the Buddhism is really so it's the real science. It's, this is like the DR three of, of this thing. Yeah, yeah. Or, or like the Buddhist, the Buddha was just really good magnet or something. Um, <laughs> right. However, well, probably he was an excellent magnet, but um, <laughs> that's not the point. Um, the point is that these phenomena are real, and um, part of the meditation practice and this you do not need to be an enlightened master to begin to experience this i think anybody who sits long enough with enough devotion um, starts to experience that what you could just call a basically a sixth sense when you're yeah. out and about in your daily life and it it comes from well many different things and i'm not going to try to prove it um metaphysically or anything but just as a lived experience what it comes from is when your mind is filled um, and it's not so chaotic, the monkey mind isn't jumping around so much. You are picking yeah. up on so much more of the world as it goes around on around you. And yet it's in a very calm way. You know, it's funny because you'd think, well, if I'm getting much more information from the world, I, it must be even more chaotic. But actually, it's the opposite. All that information is yeah. coming at you all yeah, the time yeah, yeah. anyway. Yeah. Um, and when your mind is still and you have clarity, you just get 
you get it more, you feel it more. And you, I've had experiences, and again, I'm extremely low level, so I'm not trying to claim to be a master or anything, very far from it. However, I personally have had experiences where I just know where somebody's going to walk. I just know yeah. what they're going to say. It's and, not uncommon, and it is, you, if you, you're absolutely right that it's not only is it not uncommon, it's that, like, I mean, there's no guarantees, but yeah, if you sit for, like, five, ten minutes a day for a month with a genuine motivation, like, you will have an experience like this. I can just about guarantee like anyone listening to this who has some kind of doubt like just just say like maybe this is real like i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna say yeah exactly i'm gonna suspend my disbelief in a certain way i'm going to like try this in the in a rigorous way i i can just about guarantee you that it's gonna i mean as little as five ten minutes a day of sitting practice will will absolutely lead to some kind of result like this Yes, I wholeheartedly agree, and that is actually always the best um, best way to check check any of this stuff is just to try it yourself. Um, and like you say, DK, it's it's actually remarkable how low the bar is to to start experiencing stuff like this, and it's it's kind of remarkable that well. I don't want to sound snooty or something, but it's remarkable that there is so much skepticism when when the ability to test it for yourself is actually not that difficult. <laughs> you know, like it it doesn't take all that much. The problem is, and then you have the phenomenon you start to doubt your own experience, right? You go, well, maybe I just invented that in my head, and I I know from personal experience that that's possible, and I I know other people have done that too. But sorry, have done what? Oh well, you know, you something uncanny happens, and you uh, yeah. in, you intuit that it's related to your practice. But then, ten minutes later or ten days later, you look back and you go, ah, I don't know, I I, I probably just was, you know, I think drinking it, the Kool Aid. You know, I think we all go through a fit. You know, when if you, people who are serious practitioners who are kind of you know get on the path in a in a more stable way, I think it it certainly happened to me, and it's pretty it's happened to most people that in in my experience that you, yeah you go through a kind of a phase like that and and it's not from where i am now which could be wrong because i like you am, am no kind of you know I, it's funny the uh, uh, zenite was sort of like i i started i invited him on he's like oh well you know i'm not i don't know enough i'm like what you, you saying that i think that i do like I, I was a little i saw your interaction i was a little bit uh, ashamed by it because yeah. he's he's like well i don't actually know i'm <laughs> and i'm like yeah, oh i do yeah i'm so, like neither do i <laughs> whatever i mean it's fine but um but uh no i was i was just saying like um actually i lost my train of thought oh yeah right so people go through this phase and and i think i think you know to me it's it's on kind of on to some extent on the other side of it it's it's i actually do think that these kind you know these things are real or at least they can't they, if you're not whatever like psychotic they're real and and that there is a kind of a structural similarity in some ways between a psychotic break and a, an experience of um yes. you know seeing the true nature but it doesn't matter. That's the that's the key point. You know, that's the thing that like keep, you know, if you go to a teacher and you say, "Oh, you know, I had these amazing experiences." He's like, "Yeah, and." You know, like it, it, it's at some level it's the um it's the focus on it and the and the trying to like hold on to it. That's where you really get into trouble. Um yeah, everybody has, you know, it's very well. I mean, that's one kind of I, I don't, again, I, I know less about Zen and and I don't know how these things are in the Theravada tradition, but in in Indian Buddhism, they love lists. They love lists, and the Tibetans really, yeah. 
they they and and it's all every little aspect of every little thing is exhaustively categorized and you say well there's three experiences you know bliss clarity or luminosity or, or whatever and uh not thinking the, the experience of bliss the experience of of you know clarity and the experience of not thinking are like the three characters and then you can talk to describe these three things in different ways and blah 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 but they all say you know if you get attached you it's 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 it, at some level it's impossible not to you, you have this kind of like moment of insight and you you know things suddenly click and the universe is like it's all in, you're all like all on the same page and it's it's really quite exhilarating which is great it should be exhilarating but you know that that is the be- that is the beginning point right that is like where practice starts um it's like okay congratulations you've reached step one yeah yeah um i have a couple notes on that actually i 100 percent agree with you um that it's it's important not to get distracted by these things and that is in the sutras over and over and over again about um you know that the, the point of things is not to develop powers the point is to become enlightened essentially um and oh, there's wait, a there's yes, sir, go on. no 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 um i was just gonna i had pulled up a couple of uh quotes from the sutras here um on these topics um let's see one day lord buddha and some monks were on a path to reach a certain village on the way they had to cross a river there was a boat and people had to pay the boat owner to cross the river suddenly a person who looked like a sage crossed the river levitating above the river it was done by him to show off as the lord buddha's group was there lord buddha asked how much does it cost to pay the, to cross cross the river uh and they were the amount was told to the buddha you know 50 cents or whatever and the lord buddha said then that is how much that person's power is worth right 50 cents <laughs> because that's all you know that's, <laughs> that's all it's going to do is, you know and there's there's stories like that throughout the um uh throughout not just the um the sutras but it, i'm what's the word for the uh, stories about the buddha i can't remember yeah, the uh, what I was gonna say. There's a, I believe in the Vinaya. There's a yes, like, thank you. Yeah, and there's a um, like the prohibition on doing magical feats for public consumption right. is, if I recall correctly, it's in a section on it's about begging bowls, because like the right. the the story that's used to be like don't don't perform magical feats for like for public or for money or whatever is is like it's a story about a guy who wanted a better begging bowl and that's why he was he was doing all these miracles and the buddha was like no you can't don't do that but it was it was like the 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 point of the story was don't do that because you shouldn't want a better begging bowl it wasn't like there's something wrong with you know what i mean so it's kind of it's just a very the way we think about this stuff is is um i mean it's not i mean look all this stuff happened, you know, 2000 plus years ago in some cases or a thousand years ago, or, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's just a radically different cultural and historical context, linguistic context, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, it's, um, it's important not to get wrapped up in them, but I, I also think it's important. I mean, that, and, and this feeds back into your earlier point about not wanting to, uh, try to defend these things on quote-unquote scientific grounds because yeah the it's it's um 
I don't want to get into like the philosophy of science, but sorry, yes? No, I didn't say anything. Oh, okay. No, what I was saying is the, um, I, to me, the value of this topic and the importance of this topic is, okay, there's an extent to which it, you know, people are interested or people want to be able to acquire money and power and wealth and sex and, and, and to do this in a framework that actually also simultaneously leads to enlightenment. Like, why wouldn't you want that? That's the central appeal of the Vajrayana. But even leaving that aside, I think we in the West at this moment have a real problem in terms of the secular liberal framework. And to the extent that magical feats or the recognition or the defense of the idea that that you can do these things, that these these kinds of things are real, to the extent that that breaks down our kind of materialist ontological framework, it's actually very valuable. It's actually very valuable and very important that we can you know sort of say well you used to you think the universe is made out of newtonian billiard balls you know first of all we've known for a hundred years that it's not <laughs> right. just at a scientific level and second of all you know because of that there's all this other stuff that you can do to kind of prove that and if you don't believe it try try just try i mean that's the part that pisses me off sorry to, to go on a rant and then i'll let you I'll, I'll see the floor back to you but but it's like you were saying you know how many of these people have sat for a single minute in their goddamn lives they've never like it, it floors me. It never ceases to amaze me. These people who are like, well, you know, meditation, blah, 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 or, you know, it's just stupid or it doesn't do anything. It's like, have you sat for a single minute ever? Yeah, the lack of curiosity is is really quite astonishing sometimes, you know, and then it's all in the name of, well, we're the, you know, you're the you're the closed minded ones. Uh, we're, we're the uh, true seekers. I'm like, whatever. You just read whatever is in The New York Times science section that doesn't make you a scientist yeah you know? right exactly uh, uh yeah no i i so i had the, the two points i wanted to make on the idea that things aren't um you know that phenomena are a distraction on the path ultimately and one i already made the point and two um piggybacks on what you just said which is that if you look at western um again you know our bugabears uh, bugaboos the uh the California Zen or whatever you want to call these people. When confronted with these stories, they'll most immediately go to the explanation. They'll say, well, we don't know, you know, and what, what you believe is not so important really, because as the Buddha said, these things are just a distraction. So don't, don't think about them. Don't worry about them. And this is a worse kind of half truth because the part that's half true, that is true is is that yes, indeed, the Buddha did say these things are ultimately distractions on the path and not the point of the path, right? So they're not making a false claim there. However, it's just a very, I would almost even say cowardly sort of um, sidestep of the real question, because as I was trying to set the floor when we first began the discussion, it's a very important question. Do you believe that these things actually exist in the real universe? And if so, then how do they fit into the, the Buddhist well, it's a question. Uh, it's a question of uh, ultimate and relative truth. I mean, I don't know. I, I presume that distinction exists in, um, in Zen. Uh, it's certainly extremely important in Vajrayana and Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and yeah, I mean, if you're saying like, yes, in terms of ultimate truth, in terms of ultimate truth, everything is empty and or, or it's beyond empty and not empty and it's completely right. inexpressible and completely beyond thought and language. So there's not a whole lot to say in terms of relative truth. 
you know, where there's iPhones and airplanes and cars and husbands and wives and blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, it's actually extremely important. <laughs> you know, you can't just sort of hand wave that away. And I think that's what that sort of is an attempt to do is say, well, you know, relative truth is just sort of like, uh, I, I actually don't know. I, I don't understand these people terribly well. There is a strain um, even in, in Tibetan Buddhism, it's not like my strain of Tibetan Buddhism that that tries to be uh, a real as realist and kind of concrete about ordinary phenomena as possible. Um, that's um, I don't think really the right approach, but but I mean it, it's there and and even well, so, different cultures, sorry. different cultures have different cultures yeah. have different uh, typical diseases and they need different kinds of medicine. So <laughs> yes, it, it may be true in a highly like magically oriented like at least may I don't know about modern Tibet, but at least classical Tibet. Maybe there was a need for a school that's like ignore all this. Well, it right? was actually yeah, and, and, and you're you're exactly right. It was actually about discipline was the fundamental issue because you know when the the thing about magic and all these kinds of things and, and this kind of high level perspective is uh, it's very easy to delude yourself. And when you're in a space in a state where there's you know you're beyond up and down and left and right and good and bad, uh, yeah, okay, that's a kind of ultimate state, but precisely because there's no longer really any good or bad, it's very easy to do bad things and convince yourself that it's okay, which is historically the argument is what people were doing and there's some evidence to support that. And so as a kind of reaction to that, as a way to get people back on track and provide them with strict guide rails, um, there was this this tradition that emerged. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, definitely there's something to that. Yeah, it's... Um... I think it was C.S. Lewis that said uh, something along the lines of, we, we love to give ourselves the medicine that we don't need. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and so you have you have Westerners who are extremely materialistic um, being giving themselves the medicine of don't be non-materialistic all the time when what they could really use is the opposite dose, which is, you know, um, uh, try some magic, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you exactly. know? So, and maybe there's magically oriented uh, cultures in the past that are like, we need more magic. It's like, I don't know. Maybe you yeah, guys maybe need a little bit more hard science. To settle down a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I don't think that, I mean, it, it, to me, it's very clear at this moment that what we, we in the West um, need, you could say we need God. I mean, to put it in kind of Christian language, maybe jarring in this context, but we, we need a, we need, we, we have gotten so far away from what the truth of the matter is we've gone so far down this road of you know the newtonian billiard balls that uh and i think we're seeing that we're seeing i mean that's that's how i interpret stuff like the new age thing and and all these kinds of phenomena people people are hungry people um people see that people people there's an intuitive sense often that these that that you know there's more to it than molecules colliding in a vacuum um but that the old kind of answers don't don't necessarily work so well um and and so what do you do what do you do yeah well you know the um i guess the best answer is always um the simplest one which is just to take them seriously yourself and embody them yeah you know, every every word that we say here on this um, stream is hopefully interesting. I, I'm certainly interested in it, 
Um, but then um, probably the best thing to do is then to hang up and then sit for two hours and then go out yeah, and, right. you know, with your seventh chakra wide open and glowing <laughs> bright energy into the universe and people yeah. picking up on it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting, I mean, that, that's sort of getting off topic. I, Sorry. Well, I was actually just going to ask you, um, I don't want to make you um, have to retreat to modesty or anything, but I'm just curious, do you, have you had experiences where you feel like, wow, I'm, I'm, I'm magic right now? I'm magic? Nah, you know what I mean. Have you, <laughs> have you had experience of uh, uh, strange phenomena or? Yeah, I mean, um... I'll, I'll put it this way. I'll put it this way. I went through a phase where I sort of realized that the things that you do on the cushion can translate into the things you do off the cushion, kind of, if you want them to. And so I just sort of started messing around off the cushion a bunch. And uh, I'll never forget, I was, I was, I was in traffic, I was, I was walking, I was a pedestrian, and it wasn't, I was in the right, which is, I'm sure, part of the thing. But this car, like, came up on me kind of aggressively and so I made like a little mudra and I said a little mantra kind of under my breath <laughs> without even like sort of thinking about it twice and yeah the um the car just like completely stalled out and like the dude was like why did my car just stall and like it just stopped <laughs> in the middle of the road for a second I was just sort of laughing to myself and yeah. then I, I was thinking about it more later I was like you know that was that was not necessary. Like I, I mean, what was my even motivation there, really? And so I stopped doing that so much. And um, I don't know if I would. I mean, um, I don't know if I would say that my like practice is better necessarily. I don't know. I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, I, I, um, in, in some ways I've definitely deepened in my practice. I mean, the, a lot of it came down to, you know, my teacher was basically, he sort of, um, made it a point of emphasizing like devotion. And when I was checking my mind, I was like, well, sure. I have this knowledge and, and, and maybe this, you know, this, this kind of understanding of how to make ritual stuff work. But how good is my motive? How good is my motivation? How good is my devotion? How good is my compassion? Like, really, right. Like, do I really have compassion for this guy? Is it, is it like to teach him a lesson that's really going to benefit him and about, you know, being aggressive or something, or is it just because he was pissing me off and it was a way to get back at him, you know? Right. And, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe this, maybe this sounds very trivial. I, I really have no idea how this is coming across, but, um, no, 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 actually it's quite fascinating. Uh, but the point is, um, uh, I think I think it's not to me at this point. It's not that you, one me whatever can't, or even it's not that you can't, and it's not even exactly that you shouldn't. So much as you know, what is the point? What is the motivation? What are you looking to get out of it? And and if you can't answer that in a you know if, if the answer isn't immediately and exclusively bodhicitta, then you're doing something wrong. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's true. And and we're very good at deluding ourselves, too, yeah. that, uh, that yeah. uh, 
oh no, I have good motivations here. Yeah, yeah, right. I mean, it's the easiest yeah. thing, and that's that's the thing I was saying before about you know, well, there's no good or bad, and blah blah blah. And yeah, you know, like there's a lesson in there, and that I learned about you know the. It, it, it was an interesting. It was an interesting moment. It, it was a for me a kind of pivotal moment, even as trivial in a sense as it was. Um, but uh, yeah, so it, it's it's not. It's yeah. It's again. It's not. I mean, this is why. Like it, this stuff is often kind of like um, not. You you kind of have to read between the lines, or you have to kind of you know you have to get instructions, you have to get empowerment, you have to go through rituals. There needs to be some kind of way that you're going to be kept in check because otherwise it's very easy to go off the rails. It's often said in the Vajrayana, you know, you you can go very very quickly up, but you can also go very 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 quickly down, and you know spend incalculable eons in Vajra hell, which is just much much worse than ordinary hell. <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question about motivation. I'll tell you a little anecdote, Please. If, you will, if you'd like. Um, so I travel a lot for work, and um, I spend a lot of time on airplanes and uh, trains and stuff like that. And I got into the habit um, many years ago of trying to use that time for meditation, which is mm -hmm. good because you're sitting still, and there's generally not a lot of overt distractions, but you are not in the peace and quiet of your home, right? Because there are distractions. Yeah, of course. And it's good. It's a good way to sort of bridge the gap between ordinary interactive life, where you're actually talking with people and walking around, and the peace of the meditation cushion. Um, so, anyways, I, I found that very useful, and also it can be very aggravating uh in general so it's a good time to meditate anyway um i used to live in new york city and i used to take the uh subway at least twice a day and um so i knew what normal subway riding was like and i'm just using that because that's sort of the baseline for my experience experiment mm -hmm. some years after i was living in new york i had to travel there for work and i was staying really far away from where i had to work don't ask me why it was just a bad a bad choice in my airbnb <laughs> Um, and I had like an hour and a half train ride um, to get to where I was going each morning and every afternoon to get back. And um, I just used that time um, to do a simple practice where I would just sit on my seat on the subway with my eyes closed and I would um, sort of uh, accept uh, light into my heart and then project it above my head, like uh, my crown chakra area, and then radiate beams of what I was imagining as loving energy to the people on the train around me, right? Mm -hmm. So, and then I would try to direct it at one or another person. Um, but this was all with my eyes closed, and I was very careful not to try to have some sort of silly, like, I am so peaceful yeah, yeah, yeah. smile on my face, you yeah, know? Right. And that's why I brought up my previous commutes because I, you know, you sit with your eyes closed on the train all the damn time when you're commuting in the morning in New York City. So my outward appearance theoretically should have been no different than normal. And after a couple of days of doing this, I got like a higher than 50% hit rate of doing that if I did it for, say, five minutes or so, two or three stops along the train. Uh where if I opened my eyes and glanced over, the person at whom I was directing this energy would be looking at me. Hmm. Um, and I did this, this was for two weeks. I did it every morning and every night, uh, every evening. Um, and it it got to the point where I was like, almost became like a game, you know, because I, like, yeah, I can't yeah, believe yeah. how much this yeah. is working. Yeah, that's fine. And af yeah. afterwards, when I would get up and walk around, I had, in that two-week period, I must have had 
I don't know, eight or nine different people ask me for directions, which is not something I ever got uh, when I was living in New York. Like right. I think one or two times my entire time living in New York, people asked me for directions and then eight or nine times in this two week period. Um, and I, you know, to bring it back to what you're saying about motivation and everything, that's an interesting question because I think what I was really doing was looking for proof to myself. I think I was trying to prove something Mm-hmm. Uh, to myself and then I started getting caught up in the game of it and in the um, like wow I must be I must really have amazing vibes if people want to talk to me and look at me and everything but where's, aren't, where's the lie aren't I so bright but where's the lie yeah that's the thing is like okay I mean I understand and it's good to be checking on yourself but it's also good to recognize like of course of course you're putting out great vibes I mean duh like that's the whole thing yeah yeah it's that's true that's true. It it is extra fun though to get this sort of outside yeah, validation. Yeah, external kind of know? validation. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, that's an interesting story, and thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, people. I, I guess, as I said, it's just to me. I just look at it as a kind of question of arranging causal circumstances, and and maybe in ways that are not immediately obvious, or ways that are quote unquote impossible. But it's like, you know, it, 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 in my mind, it works. There's a very famous story. I forget which sutra, but it's in the it's in the Pali canon. Um, and it's like, I, I know it mostly because it's very famous in Buddhist art where, you know, the Buddha had this naughty cousin, Devadatta, who was always getting in trouble and kind of a jerk, kind of a murderous jerk because he tried to murder the Buddha on like multiple occasions. And on <laughs> this occasion in the story, he um, he like tried to send a stampeding elephant after the buddha who but then like as the elephant approached the buddha it it, and sometimes this is represented iconographically with with like um like a like a circle of light um also i think a similar story there's something about or maybe it was another occasion but he he sent arrows and the arrows like hit this kind of what's iconographically represented as a circle of light and they turned into flowers um but the sorry Go on. No, but the point is that um, I don't ne- actually necessarily doubt that arrows would ne- would literally turn into flowers, or that that actually literally happened. I, I, I certainly not out of the realm of possibility, and would would be well in keeping with with stuff. But but to me, the point is the kind of like the what's the what's the underlying message, right? Or what's the point of the story? Or how does this work? The, the elephant example, I think, is is great because it it's totally. I mean, I my first kind of. Um, foray into the world of doing this stuff was I, I was witnessing a fight between some street dogs and I had I, I um it was like a really nasty vicious street dog fight and I did some stuff to suppress their anger and they stopped fighting and I realized in that moment I was like oh um The, the line between like beha- like behavior is a causally conditioned thing that's like when you're getting it like what is nirvana right it's freedom from causally conditioned it's freedom from causes and conditions which means our behavior is no longer mediated by karma um and so the, and that can be that can be a karma can you know karma is action act you know any act in the world is karma yeah so you know when you're talking about the elephant charging at the buddha like then sort of decide you know it's kind of like deciding 
in a sense on its own like ah, maybe i don't want to be doing this you know maybe i'm just gonna kind of chill out and sits and kneels at the feet of the buddha um that's a kind of like like the there's a kind of like the the shield the the light circle that's encircling the buddha right this kind of, is is a kind of causal protection field it's like within within this zone causality is manipulated in such a way that it poses no threat to the to the being to the people whatever inside it yeah and and yeah i don't want to say too much more than that at this moment <laughs> No, I think it's it's very powerful, and um, it's something to remember that um, even if we want to remain humble and uh, not try to claim powers that uh, the Buddha would claim, or, or <laughs> the Buddha is reported to have, at the same time, it is also the whole point of the whole thing is that we can become Buddhas. Yeah, um, and that we're you know if we put away the false humility and everything that we are on that path, and we do intend to do that. Um, or, or you're not really a Buddhist, you know? Yeah. Um, and that along that path, um, as you start to, um, understand causality in your own mind and the way that your own actions, your own thoughts, um, like you said, those are, that's karma too. And karma is all interrelated. And so your karma, doesn't just affect you. Um, it affects the whole world. And, you know, you were talking earlier about uh, the difference between Mahayana and Theravada on this. And one thing, at least in the Thai forest tradition, is they tell you again and again that your sitting is a gift to yourself. But it is also a gift to the whole world. Um, because by taming your own mind, by creating this uh, this this uh, karmic field like you're talking about, um, you benefit everybody that you're around. And they don't really talk about benefiting limitless beings throughout all time and space. Um, but... Maybe we'll get to that when I'm already in our. That sounds like we'll, a great I'll topic for next time. Maybe. Um, yes. Yeah. Sort of. I mean, this was sort of jump in the deep end here, which is fine. I mean, that's it, it, uh, in in my sort of sub sub school, you know, my little corner of Adriana. That's often how we sort of is a baptism by fire is is typical in a way. But yeah, um, yeah maybe maybe that would be a, a cool. I don't know. Would you be Would you be interested in that? Or I, I think it kind of like. Well, su summarize what 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 part of what I said would be a good topic. Uh, I'm interested in hearing how you understand your own tradition and how it differs from like my tradition in Zen. I think we should have. I think a kind of roundtable on Zen, Vajrayana, and at least the Thai forest form of Theravada um, could be could be cool. Yeah, man, that would be that would be awesome. Yeah, let's maybe let's maybe plan on that for next time. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. Sorry, that was that's an aside. It was just it just struck me as you were talking. I was like, I wish I knew more. So so what you, yeah. you said the, the the rhetoric isn't about benefiting limitless beings, but the kind of re, in, in a sense it is. Or or how would you? Yeah, I guess I would say. Um, I mean, certainly you start every meditation by sending uh, uh, compassion and loving kindness to all corners of the universe. So there is some talk of that. It's not it's not avoided entirely, but certainly rhetorically, it's not nearly emphasized as much as it is in the Mahayana. But in this particular school and the, the teacher that I um, follow the most, uh, he often talks about, again, when you sit down, it's to benefit your own mind. It's giving yourself a gift. But keep in mind that this is giving a gift to really the whole world, but especially just the people you interact with. So, yeah. you know, very simple stuff. But, you know, like um, 
you you benefit your mother, your father, um, your brother, your sister, and the people you interact with on a daily basis um, by being, you know, by by taming your own mind and by having um, this, you know, radiating uh, beautiful energy around you, um, and that and that at least in the initial stages of the path. Uh, that, that that's enough right there. Don't, don't feel that you're being selfish because you're not this. It's enlightened selfishness, if that makes sense. Yeah. The, uh, it's, so the one people often say like, it, the, well, I forget the exact, I forget the first one, but they say the most in, in, in Tibetan thing, Tibet world, we say often the, the motivation of the Theravada is like the motivation of, I forget what, but it's basically just for yourself. And then they say the, the motivation of the Mahayana is or the Bodhisattva is like a, a raft, like the, the a person on a raft, uh, the captain of a raft, where you, you want to get all the people on the raft first and you can't actually um, do anything until everyone's on the raft. And then you can get on, you know, once everyone's on board, then you cross the raft altogether. Right. Uh, but the motivation of uh, the Vajrayana is like the motivation of a king where it's it's kind of like it's back to being um in a sense self-centered but now it's like you have the power to build infinite rafts yeah exactly you could just do it <laughs> snap your fingers and get shit done yeah that's cool man i love it yeah yeah so that's probably a good place to st i don't know was there was there more you wanted to um no, I mean, I think, you know, in any of these topics, we could, could go talk on for, six, I'm, I'm we could talk for six hours, but yeah, I think it's a good ending yeah. spot. Uh, I'm sorry for our technical difficulties, um, and uh, I hope that we didn't lose too many <laughs> too many listeners because uh, of that, but um, I think we had a really great discussion. Thank you so much, Aura, for um, being down for, for putting this together. Thank you. Yeah, no, 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 and uh, and and yeah. Next time, we'll let's we get, let's arrange some some sound tests and stuff and try to get everything working. But uh, for now, this has been Right Wing Dharma Squads episode two. I hope everyone enjoyed, and we will catch you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>